Bibles and open them with me to Luke chapter 4. Today, as we continue our series through Luke's Gospel, uh, and picking up where we left off last week, uh, last week we saw Jesus preaching in his hometown of Nazareth, uh, and we saw only the message that Jesus preached. Uh, This week we will see the rejection that Jesus faced. And just for context, today our study is verses 22 through 30. Uh, But I'm going to back up the reading to verse 16 so we can hear again uh, the events that led up to the rejection uh, of Jesus at the hands of these, uh, these, his uh, fellow townsmen uh, in his hometown. Uh, So Luke chapter 4, verse 16, you can find that at the bottom of page 859 in one of our ESVs. Luke chapter 4, beginning in verse 16, and we'll read through verse 30. Before we read together, please join me in prayer. O Lord, our God, giver of all good gifts, and you who promise wisdom to those who lack, we pray that now as we, <coughs> excuse me, as we read your word, we pray that you would make us hearers of it and doers of it. We pray that you would uh, warn us against sin that we may find here, draw us to Christ whom we find here, and give us faith to follow you. Would you do this in the hearts of your people for the sake of your name? And by the power of your spirit, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. In our God's word as we find it, Luke chapter 4, beginning the reading in verse 16. And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him, and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth, and they said, Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we've heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly, I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word, may he add a blessing to its reading and to its hearing. February 14th, 1996, a day that will live in infamy 
least it will for me. That was the day that I decided uh, to declare my affection for a young woman who was in my sixth grade class. No, it was not the woman that I ended up marrying. Uh, but I decided to declare my affection for a young woman. It was also the day that my romantic notions got the better of me. And so I'm sure that I looked painfully awkward. And the whole situation looked painfully awkward from the outside as everyone who passed by her locker that morning at school saw me waiting there, waiting for her to show up. I was dressed in my best Sunday outfit. I was armed with a single long-stemmed red rose and a poem of my own composition. And when finally she appeared, I handed her my offering. I said something suave like, I got these for you. And then I turned without another word and walked to homeroom. And by second period, I had heard that she didn't quite know what to make of it all, especially the poem. Now, it seemed to me that my poem ended in a perfectly comprehensible question. Will you be my valentine? But I didn't define my terms. And nobody really knows what a valentine is or what they're supposed to do. And anyway, she had already decided to go steady with someone Rejection. We've all experienced it. Maybe it was sixth grade puppy love for you. Maybe it was the college of your choosing. Maybe a job that you weren't qualified for. Maybe worse, maybe it was a spouse or a parent or a coworker. But you know what it is to be passed over, to be turned down and disappointed. Rejection is a fact of life. It's something that we have all experienced at some time and in some varying degree, and we will continue to experience it, I'm sure, throughout our lives. Rejection was also something that our Savior faced and something that he experienced as he walked the earth among people blinded by sin. John, chapter 1, tells us that the Word of God came unto his own and his own people did not receive him. And in, in Nazareth, he was rejected. He was thrown out like trash. He was taken to the hill where they hoped to silence these gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And it is scandalous. It is shocking to us because we have not seen him and yet we love him, says Peter. And here were people who saw him and they looked into his eyes and they listened to his voice and they hated him. And they wanted to be rid of him. And they wanted to kill him. And the brain boggles to think how anyone could reject Jesus. And yet it happens all the time. We read today from Isaiah chapter 53. He was despised and rejected of men. And Jesus, despised and rejected in Nazareth, continues to be despised and rejected the world over. Many people turn away from him and reject him and want nothing to do with him despite these words, these gracious words pouring forth from his lips like honey. And though we might be attracted to this account of our Savior simply because it shows us that Jesus suffers the same things that we suffer. He knows what rejection feels like even though we might be drawn to it because of that, uh, that reason. But there's a much greater lesson for us here. There's a warning for us, a lesson that warns us of the seeds of rejection that lie dormant in every human heart. This passage is a diagnosis of the reasons that men turn their back on the offer of God's grace. This passage is 
a picture of how disturbingly easy it is to be offended by Jesus. And it is an analysis of the kind of acidic soil where rejection of Jesus grows most easily. That's what we find in this passage. See a diagnosis of rejection. And there are several lessons that we need to learn as we go through this passage, as we see what Jesus does and and what he says and how he interacts with the people. The first great lesson that we need to learn from Jesus' rejection is what Jesus requires of us. We need to know what Jesus requires of us. You know, when you read a passage like this, it's challenging to consider why Jesus didn't simply leave the matter as it was in verse 22. Jesus preached and the people were amazed. They wondered. It says they marveled at the gracious words coming from his mouth. And if that were you standing there where Jesus was, maybe you would just raise your hands and pronounce the benediction right there and leave everybody else to go home with something to think about. But that's not what Jesus does. He refuses to leave it there. Think about it. Jesus knows what's in the minds of men. He knows already the animosity that is brewing in the hearts of these people. He likely knows exactly what they will try to do when he continues to preach. And as they stand in amazement, he provokes them. He will not leave them where they are in verse 22. He pushes them. He pushes the people beyond the stage where they can sit there in in quiet amazement, where they can puzzle, uh, what is it that he's saying? Jesus provokes the people to the point of decision. They must be for him or against them, anywhere else but on the fence, and so he pushes them. That is Jesus' question all the time, isn't it? Never mind what the crowds are saying. Never mind what somebody else is telling you. Who do you say that I am? That's what Jesus requires of us. He requires a decision. And he continues pushing the people in Nazareth until they are forced to choose sides. Because Christ is not content with anything less. He will not leave us until he has forced us to either renounce the world and follow him or to renounce him and follow the world. Now that seems awfully black and white, but that's exactly what's happening. You can see it in the way that Jesus continues preaching to them, the way he refuses to allow the people to draw near to him with anything less than full-fledged faith. Some of the people in Nazareth tried, or they responded, rather, with, with idle fascination. They spoke well of him, and why not? That's what happened everywhere Jesus went. What a charismatic speaker, they would say. What penetrating, insightful thoughts into the mind of God. How could he say such thing? That's how it was when Jesus spoke. The crowds gathered around him. They were fascinated by him. They pressed so closely that there was standing room only in the places where he taught. They pressed so closely that Jesus was forced to teach from fishing boats. They sat out all day in the Judean sun with empty stomachs, just listening to him speak because he was fascinating when he spoke. And some people were amazed at him. Today, some people are amazed at Jesus, and they're fascinated with him. A man before his time, they might say. A gentle and a kind teacher. A fascinating man. Mohandas Gandhi famously wrote that when he read the New Testament, quote, the Sermon on the Mount went straight into my heart. 
Gandhi claimed that, he had, uh, that Jesus had the most profound influence on his life of any man who ever lived. And Gandhi was fascinated by Jesus, but he was not a follower of Jesus. He gave up much for the cause of India, but he never gave up a single thing to follow Jesus and to believe in Jesus and to become his disciple. You see, fascination, idle fascination with Jesus isn't enough. And Jesus won't leave us there. He pushes and provokes to let us know that that's not enough, because he requires more than that from us. More than fascination and more than familiarity. That's the other way that the people responded to Jesus in Nazareth. When he spoke and, and when he stood there preaching, they said, hey, we know that guy. Isn't that Joseph's son? Isn't that the carpenter's boy? And, and aren't his brothers and sisters here with us? He's, he's one of us. We know him perhaps even better than he knows himself. So who is he to tell us what he's about? And Mark chapter 6 says that in Nazareth, familiarity bred contempt. And many were offended at him. They thought they knew him more than others, that they had a little bit more surface contact with Jesus, and their familiarity became a stumbling block to getting to know Jesus, to getting to know who he was and what he was about. Now, that's not always the way that it works. Familiarity with Jesus can be a wonderful blessing, and if you are raising your children in the church, you want them to be familiar with Jesus. You want them to listen to his parables and to his promises. You want them to know the accounts of his love and his sacrifice and all that he did to draw his people to himself. You want your children to grow up in a church and in a home where someday they might say, you know, I never really remember a time when I didn't believe that Jesus was my Savior. Familiarity with Jesus can be a wonderful blessing, but familiarity alone does not unite us to Jesus. No one has ever been saved simply because they can recite the Lord's Prayer or because they can order the Ten Commandments in their proper order. Many children every day raised in nominal Christian households who are taught to sit up straight and to say their prayers and to stay awake in worship, many of them go on to walk away from the church and away from Christ. And they renounce it all. They reject what they've been taught. It's all so much fluff, and they were just being spoon-fed as children, and they reject it all. Why? Well, certainly God's sovereign choice is involved here. God chooses whom he will harden and whom he will soften, but could it be that those who walk away from Christ, could it be the ones who are hardened are the same ones who are led to believe that mere exposure to Jesus is sufficient to make us his disciples? Could it be that the ones who walk away are the same ones who were never pressed to choose this day whom they will serve because they were told that their church attendance or their moral behavior or the waters of baptism contained all the grace of God that they will ever need? And could it be that there are many adults in congregations all over the world with the same false notion? That familiarity is enough to become a disciple of Christ. Could it be that many who end up rejecting Jesus begin by being familiar with him and never realize the need for faith in his gospel? That is why Jesus provokes. That's why he presses for a decision so that we will not convince ourselves that anything less than faith in his life and his death and his resurrection can cover our sins and give us life with him. He continues provoking 
and he preaches in Nazareth to call us to level with the fact that the choice before us is between opposites. Either we reject Christ by a whole host of means or we embrace him by faith. And we are being called today as we see the way Jesus pushes to get rid of any false notion of some some comfortable middle ground between those two, between embracing Christ by faith and rejecting him. There is no other option. There is no other alternative. Horatius Bonar wrote, There is no consistent medium between reckless atheism and the intensest warmth of religious zeal. Either we follow Christ in faith or we reject him by degree. And Jesus requires that we know which one of those we've chosen. And so he provokes and he presses because he requires something of us. Now, as he continues to press the people, we learn the second lesson of this passage, and that is where rejection comes from. We've seen what Jesus requires. Now we see where rejection comes from. Now, in Jesus' preaching, as he continues uh, in verse 23, uh, we find three roots that feed rejection of Christ. This probably is not an exhaustive list. Maybe you could come up with others. But mark this passage well, because in every heart that turns from Christ, probably at least one of these is at work. And perhaps we need to examine ourselves to see if any of these roots of bitterness are in our hearts as well. So where does rejection of Jesus come from? Well, it comes first from an obstinate skepticism. Look at verse 23. He said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. That is, if you claim to be able to do such wonderful things, why don't you give us a little preview of the kind of power and pizzazz you're talking about? You know, Jesus, you've got a pretty good sales pitch, but give us a taste of what you're talking about, and we don't need to believe anything that we can't lay our eyes on. Why don't you prove a little bit? Physician, heal yourself before we submit to all these cures that you're prescribing for us. And even if you've never heard that parable before, if you've never heard that proverb, it's completely clear because he explains it in the next verse, the next line, rather. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, not what you did at Capernaum. What we have heard you did at Capernaum, why don't you do here in your hometown as well? You see, this is the thinking of Thomas. He said it well. He explained exactly what they had in mind when they were thinking this, that unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails, unless I place my finger into the marks of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. That's the thinking in their minds. They've heard of Jesus' wonderful works, driving out demons and healing the lepers and curing the blind and wonderful things that he's doing. And the whole county is talking about what Jesus is doing. But until they see it with their own eyes, until they have undeniable, incontrovertible proof that meets their criteria, they refuse to believe what everyone else says they've seen. And this is the spirit of our age. This is the cardinal virtue of contemporary scientific man who desires no longer to live under the yoke of superstition, no longer to submit to theories of unseen and unknown and unmeasurable forces at work in the world, and I suppose that's okay so far as it goes. 
until we remember that the generally accepted scientific theory, the cosmological model of the universe that everyone is abuzz about in astrophysics these days, contains something that is unseen and unmeasurable, something called dark matter, something invisible, which the astrophysicists tell us accounts for roughly 85% of the total mass of the known universe, and is the explanation for why galaxies don't just fly in all directions and split apart. Dark matter. We can't see it. We can't measure it directly, but we see its effects, and so we infer that it's there and it becomes dogma. But don't you Christians tell me about things that you can't see but only see its effects. Now, I'm not denying the existence of dark matter. I'm not qualified for those calculations. I, I can't even begin to work out some of those, uh, those things that go into that, but that's not my point, not to deny or to confirm dark matter, but simply to say that skepticism, for the sake of skepticism in the hands of men, is rarely an unbiased tool. Far more often, skepticism for the sake of skepticism becomes a crowbar in our hands, something to leverage all the reasons why we don't have to believe what we don't want to believe. And until it meets my criteria, I don't have to follow it and I don't have to believe it. And it's the Christians who are thought to be simple and childish because we base our entire hope on something that has yet to be seen. We are those who believe God's word in order to see his salvation and not the other way around. And that's okay. If that seems offensive to the minds of modern man, that's okay, because that is exactly the standard the Lord has given us. Unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of God. But it is an obstinate skepticism that rebukes and, and refuses and turns away and rejects Jesus out of hand simply because it doesn't make sense to our minds. And Jesus isn't calling Christians to get lobotomies and put our brains in a jar on a shelf. That's not what it's about, but he is calling us to faith first. To hear and to receive his word, to believe him in order to see his grace and salvation. Hebrews 11 says, Without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So be on guard against skepticism for the sake of skepticism. It's the first root of rejection. The second root of rejection is a sense of spiritual, spiritual entitlement. Notice the entitlement in the thoughts uh, of the people. What we have heard you did in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. They didn't have to add that. It's a little bit redundant. He knows where here is. He's standing there. He's in Nazareth. He's looking on the faces of all the people that he knew when he was growing up. And they say, what we've heard you did over there, do here. You know, in, in your hometown as well, where, where we kind of deserve a little bit of return on our investment. It takes a whole village to raise a, a child, you know, and boy, were we invested. We befriended you when you were coming up. We nurtured you and we taught you and we walked with you and we, we farmed with you and we were your, your customers and we, we helped you. And so if anybody at all deserves a little taste of this power you're talking about, it's us. Isn't it, Jesus? You hear the entitlement. What you did over there for those other people, that's great, but, but how about a little bit for us? But that's not how it works. 
Jesus says, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown, verse 24. Now, mark Jesus' words carefully here. He's not saying that it is impossible for a person to be honored where they grow up. There are people where you grew up who are honored, and they've stayed there, and you can, you can remember. And every time you go home to your hometown, you know who they are. They're, uh, they're maybe the high school football star, the quarterback who won the state championship, and 25 years later, everybody's still talking about it, and they receive honor in their hometown. There's the high school valedictorian who now is sitting on the school board, and they're honored, and they're respected in their hometown. Jesus isn't saying that it's impossible to be honored where you grew up, but he is saying that it is impossible for a prophet to be honored. Because what does a prophet do? Well, a prophet is a man of God who comes with a message of rebuke and correction and reproof. Holy men carried along by the Spirit to speak as the mouthpiece of God. Men who care more for what God thinks about the sins of a community than what the community thinks about their own virtues. And invariably, when a prophet speaks... Anywhere and to anyone, hearts are laid bare and sin is exposed and God's truth is announced with piercing clarity. And the reality when a prophet speaks is that we find out just how little we deserve from God. You see, these hometown people can accept anything. They can accept good news in abundance. But what they cannot abide is one of their own who becomes their critic. Why? because it strikes a blow to their sense of entitlement. That was the point of the two examples that Jesus used from the time of the kings. Elijah and Elisha, bold men of God, prophets without parallel in their time, men who castigated kings and terrified armies and raised the dead. And Jesus specifically chooses two instances where the mercy that Israel thought they deserved was given through the prophets to outsiders to the covenant people of God. The widow in Zarephath and Naaman the Syrian. You remember those accounts. You can read uh, of the widow of Zarephath in 1 Kings 17. Uh, Elijah uh, was sent to dwell with a Gentile woman while Israel languished under famine and drought. And the Lord said, I will take care of you there. I've appointed a woman to care for you and to feed you, and you just have to go and find her. And when he goes to the land of Zarephath and he finds her, she's collecting sticks. Anything she can find to make a small fire so that she can, uh, she can prepare the last remaining scraps of food that she has in her house before she and her son succumb to starvation. And Elijah comes and he says, before you do that, Make a little something for me because I have a word from the Lord for you. You're not going to be able to trust it until you do it. You're not going to be able to see it until you follow through in faith. But here's what you need to do. Make something for me first. Take that last little bit that you have and set it aside for the prophet of God because this is what the Lord says. The jar of flour shall not be spent and the jug of oil shall not be empty until the day that the Lord sends rain upon the earth. And she does. She believes. She hears God's word and she believes, even though she has nothing to offer. And she gives what she has, and this widow received mercy while Israelite mothers are wasting away. And so too with Naaman, the commander of the hated Syrian army who is struck with leprosy, and there is a stolen servant girl taken from Israel. And she speaks a word of kindness to her master and says, there's a prophet in Israel 
who can cure you. And so off he goes, and he too receives a word. Go and wash, and you will be clean. It's almost offensive to Naaman. There's no fanfare. There's no hocus pocus. The, the prophet doesn't even come out to speak with him. He is the commander of the Syrian army, and the prophet doesn't even come out. He simply sends the word, go and wash, and all you have to do is believe and follow through in faith, and you will see God delivering you. And so he does. Some people have to challenge him a little bit. No, 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 this is a good word. Listen to it. Take it. Uh, take the advice, and he goes, and he washes, and his, his skin is restored while lepers in Israel are living and dying in the reproach of uncleanness, and this Syrian receives mercy. And in both of these examples, there is the repeated phrase, and this is the important thing that Jesus is getting to. You see it. There were many widows in Israel. There were many lepers in Israel, but to none of them were they sent, and none of them were healed except for these outsiders. Because the Lord of mercy is not beholden to any man. There is no position or influence. There is no proximity to the promises of God that means that we deserve His grace. And so Jesus is proclaiming to them the doctrine of God's sovereignty in mercy. That He decides who receives. And no one deserves anything, actually. And it is an affront to those hearts who are steeped in a sense of entitlement. What did Jesus proclaim? Good news to the poor, to the blind, to the captive. Not those who think they deserve it because of who they are or because of what they've gone, done for God and for his kingdom in the world. We may never say it, but isn't this at work in some of our hearts as well? I raised my children faithfully in the church. That means God has to keep them from the ways of the world. And I won't have to watch them go through the temptations and the struggles and the trials that I see in unbelieving families. I deserve this. I've been tithing my entire life off of all of my salary, 10% right off the top, doesn't even go to taxes. I do that and I do more, so God has to keep me employed, doesn't he? I've been waiting for a spouse within the direction of Scripture, and I haven't gone outside those bonds and those bounds, and so what God is, uh, is entitled, what I'm entitled to, what God ought to give me is a good marriage, a happy marriage full of children, full of good memories that ought to last my whole life through. I've been waiting, and don't I deserve this? And how many people have been scandalized and have ended up rejecting the faith because they realize that we don't deserve anything from God? He's gracious and he's merciful and he's kind always to do what is best for us. And all things work to the good of those who love him, but not everything works to the comfort of those who love them. Not, not at least the, the bodily comfort, not at least the ways that, that we construe it. We don't deserve anything from God, but how many have rejected Christ and later said that it was because they felt that they were treated unfairly? the hardships of their life were undeserved and that they were entitled to more than they received. It's one of the roots of rejection. There's an obstinate skepticism. And there's a spiritual entitlement. And the last root is very much like the second one. It is a disdain for God's mercy. We read in verse 28, When they heard these things, 
all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. Now, that ought to be familiar to you if you know your New Testament. This is a scenario that's been played out before and will continue to be played out as you read through the pages of the New Testament. It's the same sort of surprise that the Pharisees and the scribes have when they see Jesus allowing this sinful woman to wash his feet with her tears. It is the same kind of indignation that occurred every time Jesus ate with sinners and drank with tax collectors. It was the same rage that blinded the Jews in the temple while Paul proclaimed that the Lord had sent him to to preach good news to the Gentiles. Acts chapter 22, verse 22, tells us that up to this word, that is, up to the mention of the Gentiles, the outsiders, up to this word they listened to him, But then they raised their voices and they said, Away with such a fellow from the earth. He should not be allowed to live. And they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust in the air. And you can bet that if they could have gotten close to him, they would have done exactly what the people in Nazareth tried to do with Jesus. Take him to the top of the highest hill they could find and throw him down and be rid of him. Why? Because Paul, like Jesus, proclaimed mercy for the empty-handed. And if you are full of spiritual pride, nothing could be more offensive than seeing the poor and the blind and the captives get what you think you deserve. Nothing could be more offensive than seeing tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. That's what Jesus told the Pharisees they were seeing. And there was a disdain for God's mercy. That kind of disdain for God's mercy is one of the roots of rejection. It's the pride that chokes and strangles the soul's sense of need for what Jesus offers. It is the presumption that expects to be rewarded with the best things and then scoffs when the good news of salvation is preached to hell-deserving sinners. And this is where rejection comes from. It grows best in the soil of spiritual pride. It involves a a skepticism, an entitlement, and a disdain for God's mercy upon the undeserving. And we need to ask, dear friends, have you examined your hearts today? Hebrews tells us, warns us, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it, Many become defiled. This is where rejection comes from. And so you need to ask, are any of these attitudes in your heart today? By the grace of God, the Lord works with these things. And one of the first things he does to work with them and to root them up and to excise them is that he exposes them. And so when you find any of these things, take it to the Lord. Oh, Lord, this is the root of rejection. Cast me not away. Keep me from turning in the direction of so many. It is God's work and God's help and His Spirit that keeps His people walking with Him and preserves them to the end of days just as He has promised, but He uses means. And one of the means that He uses to preserve His people is the conviction of sin and repentance. And so if you see any of these roots in your heart, do not harden your heart today. Turn it to the Lord and repent. Now, before we close, there is one more lesson for us in this passage. It's a sad lesson. It is where rejection leads to. When the people rise up to drive Jesus out of the town, something amazing happens. 
Because here they are, hoping for some miraculous sign. They wanted Jesus to do something wonderful, and it's not until they reject him that he actually does. Their eyes are filled with rage, and the mob mentality takes over, and they're practically dragging him out of the synagogue and up the hill to throw him down, and he simply walks through their midst. What did he preach? Freedom for the captives. And they wanted the physician to heal himself, and he did. And there's very few details here. It doesn't tell us about a blinding flash of light or some heavenly envoy who comes down. It simply tells us that Jesus went free, that he was captive one moment and he was free the next. And a miracle had occurred and he was saved because it was not his time. That no man takes his life from him, but he lays it down of his own accord. And who knows whether they marched all the way up to the hill and only then finally realized that he was gone. But then we read the final word on Nazareth. It comes in verse 30. But passing through their midst, he went away. He went away. That's the final word on Nazareth. He went to Capernaum. He went to other towns and other cities where his word was received, where others would hear and rejoice and believe in the good news that this prophet from Nazareth was preaching, but none of the Gospels ever record that until his death, Jesus returned to the town of his upbringing. We are never told that Jesus returns to preach the Gospel again in Nazareth. But then where did their rejection of Jesus leave the people in Nazareth? Where were they the next Lord's Day, do you think? They're in the synagogue. Same place they always are doing the same thing they always do, listening to the word of God preached, listening to some other rabbi tell them about God for the Jews and how the outsiders are hopelessly lost. And where are they? They're congratulating themselves on how they had reacted when one of their own tried to teach them something they found distasteful. And their rejection led to abandonment. But there is a sense in which Jesus cleared the dust from Nazareth off of his sandals and it tells us in verse 30, he went away. And this is why the scriptures call us to repentance and to faith so very often. Because no man or woman or child knows when it is the last time that they will hear the preaching of the gospel in their ears. No one knows the day that our rejection of Jesus will finally be sealed by Jesus' abandonment of us to our own sinful pride, and to the judgment that we deserve. And so the Scripture's message is always today. Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart. And today, if you've already heard His voice, as I know many of you have, continue to pray that the Lord would soften your heart. Continue to offer yourself up to the Lord. Ask him to expose those roots and those seeds that still lie dormant. Continue to ask him to soften your response to him. Continue to ask him to provoke you to be a follower of him in faith. That's what Jesus requires of us. And that's what he's calling us to. And he's calling us today. Do not reject him. But follow him in faith. And be his own. Please join me in prayer.
O Lord, our God and Savior, gracious King and Lord, we thank you for this picture of Christ. We pray that you, by this image that you have given us in your holy and perfect word, you would do the work of driving it into the hearts of your people, that having heard it, you would work more and more faith in the hearts of those who are your own. You would call us to consider this calling, not to turn away from Christ, but to turn to him, to confess our poverty and our blindness and our need and our captivity and sin, to cry out for your mercy and so receive it as you've promised to all those who come to you. Oh Lord, we pray that you would not allow anyone to leave the sanctuary today without considering this day whom they will serve. Call your own to yourself, O oh Lord, draw in many. We pray that we also would be ambassadors of this word to go out into the world, that we too would not be content to leave others where they are, undecided, and in their decision rejecting Christ, but help us to be ambassadors. Help us to be witnesses and heralds of the good news of Jesus Christ, that having heard your voice, we should proclaim it to others as well, so that you would draw in many for the sake of Christ, we pray in his name. Amen.